Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Reframers. Hello. Welcome back. I'm Zach. Welcome back, everybody. And I'm joined with my co-hosts, Aaron and Cassie. Hey, everybody. Today, we are going to be talking about private prisons. And I personally didn't know this was a thing, and I don't know what could be controversial about it. So I have come up with a few questions. Uh, My co-hosts are smiling very sweetly because that is my naivete showing again. But I have a few questions for them. And I don't know if we're going to fight or agree on this one. What do you guys think? Well, in researching it, I realize there's a lot of free market versus government doing something that I didn't realize was as ingrained in this debate about private prisons. And so since I think Zach and I don't often agree on whether the government should do something or the free market should do something, free market being like private business, I could see us not agreeing very much on this one. See, and this is where I think because of my libertarian streak that we're actually going to agree more than maybe you're expecting. But first, before we jump into this, I have a much more controversial, thought-provoking topic I'd like to bring up to you too. Are you ready? Ready. Splash Mountain in Disneyland has come under fire in recent years for having racist undertones or being based off of a racist song or movie or something. So Disney, after a big petition came through where a bunch of people signed it and said, this ride needs to be gone, uh, agreed to change it. And they're going to change it to the Princess and the Frog ride, which is super cool because the Princess and the Frog is the first black princess and the ride is super old and nobody, almost nobody has even seen this movie or song that Splash Mountain is based off of with, if you've ridden it, Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear and zippity doo Day. Zach and I were just there on a family trip, and Zach had a question, and I said, we have to ask Aaron this question. So, Zach, tell us what you were thinking. Yeah, so the the ride is loosely based off of a movie that is old, like 1936, um, called Songs of the South, and it features a stereotypical um, black slave telling kind of Aesop's fables stories to a white plantation um you know, owner's child. And two of the songs in the ride, uh, Zippity Doodah and The Laughing Place, are taken from this movie. Um, the The movie only aired in theaters. It never was released to VHS. Um, and the last time it was in theaters was 1980-something, I think, uh, early 1980s. So the ride itself is influenced by this movie, which is you know, rightly now seen as being, you know, racist and, um, you know, very culturally insensitive. So my question in effect was if, if we weren't aware of this issue, because it's never, you can't watch it. You can't watch the movie. Um, if we weren't made aware in 2018 that there was this linkage here between the ride and the, and the movie, would we still know or would we still think that the ride needed to be changed? You know, basically, if a racist tree falls in the woods, does anybody hear it? Like, there's no way that you could go back and see it now. Um, so what what are our thoughts on that? I just thought it was a little bit more interesting situation than 
you know, say the Aunt Jemima syrup or the Washington Redskins, which is like very easy to, to make a case for those. This one I feel like is a little bit more thought provoking. So I wanted to talk about that for at least a couple minutes. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I love Splash Mountain. It's one of my favorite rides at Disneyland. Um, I think it's so fun. But, you know, the issue with the ride and the movie, which was based on, like you said, sort of this story of the slave talking to, you know, the plantation and uh, or a plantation person and the Song of the South was like, I think the title of it or related to it. And yeah. And um, the film's initial release was protested by the NAACP. So it's not true that it was just controversial recently. It was actually controversial when it first came out. And I think, I mean, it's not on Disney Plus. Um, I think one of the reasons is because it's been controversial since like really day one. So I think Disney knows that this was kind of on the line really from the beginning based on this um, controversial movie. And so to me, I'm kind of like, well, you know, yeah, I love the ride, but like, yeah, there's problematic things about it. And then I also think why not celebrate Disney's first black princess and bring that in. And it's such, I think it's such a perfect transition for the ride because you're in the like water and the movie of princess and the frog is so great. You're in the swamp and everything. I think it really works for what the ride actually is. And I'm super excited about the idea of celebrating, you know, more princesses. So I think that even if it I think the problematic history is the reason to change it, but I'm also really excited about the idea of updating it, you know, for a more modern time and getting that out there. Um, and also like Disney updates other sorts of rides just for, you know, modern appeal, racism aside, which I think racism is the reason to update, but there's other reasons that you might want to like update a ride too, right? Like they changed Tower of Terror to Guardians of the Galaxy, um, because there's more mass appeal for that. So, you know, I think there's, it's always changing and growing. And the only reason this is super controversial as a changeover is because it was based on this like racist beginning. And it totally makes sense to me why Disney would move away from that. I totally agree. I'm not opposed to changing the ride. I think absolutely change it to Princess and the Frog. I am not opposed. I don't find this particularly controversial. I just thought it was an interesting kind of use case in this you know, cancel culture, you know, air quotes, cancel culture kind of environment that we're in because the linkage to it being racist was more removed. And I think you have to look farther than just, you know, the logo or something like that, where the songs are not, you know, in, that are in on the ride are not done in the same style that they were done in the movie. You wouldn't know going just on the story of the ride itself that it was influenced by this movie. Like the, the linkage is not so clear, even though like by doing the research, you could find out that it's there. I just kind of, that's why I said like, if a racist tree falls, like, does it make a sound? Because it's, it's a lot more work. And I just thought that's, that's an interesting thing. If, if people had not seen the movie in living memory, would anybody know that that's, that that's an issue? I just, I just think it's, Interesting. So, I mean, I'm all for changing it, but yeah. I agree with both of you. I don't I don't dislike Splash Mountain. I've ridden it since I was a kid, but I definitely thought, oh, like nobody really is connected to this kind of in the same way that nobody was connected to. Like new generations haven't seen Indiana Jones. A lot of people haven't seen the Haunted Mansion movie, but, um, but that doesn't necessarily necessitate pulling a ride out. 
And I think a little bit I come down to money makes the world go round. I don't know that it does. Like like Aaron said, they have to refab this ride at some point anyway, just to make sure it's like maintained properly. And people are definitely not stopping riding this ride. It's still very popular. It's one of the only water rides. But Aaron, we rode it in January for our birthday. And then we were all sad, like, this is the last time. No, they just like did a January, February refurbish and it's back up. We rode it multiple times and um, there's like really no date in sight that I'm seeing of when they're actually switching this over. So I think Disney like slid in and is like doing the right thing, even though it probably just falls into their long-term plan of when they need to maintenance this ride. And I don't think that it is out of like the kindness of their hearts. Is that too negative to say? Maybe, but that's my take. Ah, the cynical take. The best one. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one I happen to agree with as well, right? It You you win the points, uh, the internet points for doing the right thing, air quotes, doing the right thing. And then also like you get to update a ride and, you know, celebrate and promote this, you know, new updated thing and draw more people into the park. So it's, it's, yeah, it's probably that from the business standpoint, but mm-hmm. um, they get to look good in terms of removing out something that's racist. I just want to say one more thing about this ride. I am very excited for Martiana, who is the Disney princess from Princess and the Frog. Not only is she this like powerful African-American woman, she is also a business owner and she has all these goals and dreams and Prince Naveen is kind of like along for her ride. And I'm just all about that representation. So, you know, whether you agree that this ride has problematic beginnings or not, I think that it totally makes sense to move over to like who she is and celebrate that. Very well said. I could talk about this for about a thousand (laughs) years, but very well said. Without further ado, I'm going to move us on. So today, our main topic of conversation is private prisons. And for you both, I have my first question, which is, what is the difference between a private prison and a public prison? And what are the benefits or reasons for having both options available? That's two questions. So should we do the difference first? <laughs> yeah, the difference is, I think, is pretty pretty easy. We can kind of knock that out pretty quick. So, I mean, the difference is, is a, a public prison is one that is managed and maintained and operated by the state. California state, the United States government, right? It's, it's a public operating entity. A private prison is Coca-Cola prison, um, you know, Pepsi prison, right? Like kind of joking in the name, but it's a prison that is managed, funded, and operated by a private corporation, therefore is in the business of making money. Um, whereas a public operated prison is not for profit, right? It's, it's actually taxpayer funded. And so they're not in it to make money. So that's the main difference there between the two. And just for a little bit more context, the federal government has a Bureau of Prisons, which is part of the administrative state, and a director of prisons who oversees the prison system in the U.S. And so that's just on the federal level. And then states have their own prison system administrative departments that oversee the state prisons because there's both state and federal prisons because there's both state and federal crimes. And so you can be incarcerated in a state prison or a federal prison. So the government has these systems in place to actually oversee and operate these prisons. And then I also looked at looked up a few of the private prison groups. There's only a, a few companies that run private prisons. And the biggest ones I found were 
Geo Group and Corrections Corporation of America, which is now called Care Civic. Well, that's a real PR name, isn't it? Oh yeah, it was a PR rebrand. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if you looked back in the last five years and saw some bad press maybe about their old name. The main benefit I'll, I'll just advocate for on the private prison side is the claim is that, and I think that there's some data to show this, is that it's cheaper. Because it's for-profit, meaning it competes against other private prisons, um, that there is a higher cost efficiency to running a private prison. And the numbers I found differ because it's not uniform across the whole country and certain states have and certain states don't. I think about half the states have a private prisons allowed and half do not. It's like five to 20% um, is the cost reduction, you know, but between the, the public prisons. So that's the main benefit for the privates. So you're saying private prison is cheaper. Yeah. Anywhere from five to 20% based off of the state and the prison and all that. Yeah. And the way this works out practically is that kind of like defense contracts where the government contracts with like a private defense firm to develop weapons or other kinds of things, the government within a private prison situation awards a contract to a private company that then, you know, opens a prison and then the government, whether it be the federal government or state government, sends their prisoners to that prison. And so the amount of these contracts is millions of dollars, the way they are for defense spending. And so it still costs a lot of money. And that's still taxpayer money, right? Because it's the government spending the money. But a lot of the contracts have requirements in them. And I looked this up because I'm a contract attorney and I'm interested in these contracts <laughs> that say like, you must be able to run this prison at 5% less the cost of what it would cost the state to run it. And so it's not even just an argument. It's, it can be a requirement in some of these contracts that the private prison runs for less money. And so then you get into- How do they do that? Exactly. Yeah, there's an interesting study I found that's pretty comprehensive called Private Prisons Quality Corrections at a Lower Cost that goes into great detail about this. And I actually am interested in reading it cover to cover just because it's it's pretty comprehensive. But, um, you know, the ways that they say are talking about innovation and utilizing more of the facility and not requiring overtime. But then, you know, also they're probably going to be cutting costs on things like food um, and, you know, maybe size of cells and things like that. So to, just because they have to operate at a lower cost doesn't mean that that's necessarily always to the prisoner's benefit. Probably oftentimes it's to their detriment. Yeah. And it was just really interesting. I think on a philosophical level, the idea is, oh, well, the government can be really inefficient at running these certain processes. You know, we use the DMV as our example, right? Like something the government runs that can be super inefficient. And like, why do we not let a private business do that? Because a private business can just run it so much more efficiently. And that's the idea behind private prisons. They're like, oh, you're a private corporation and you don't have this red tape that the government has. So you'll be able to do this cheaper and more efficiently than the government. And that's kind of like the big philosophical idea behind private prisons, which is also the big philosophical idea behind like the free market and what private companies can do and what the government can do. So I'm going to jump into at least a preview of my next question. It's actually, it's my third question, but you're mentioning it. My question was, how do private prisons make money as a business, aka who pays their bills? 
And in my notes, I just wrote, typically in a capitalist society, businesses make money when people choose them to provide their product or service over somebody else. So my question was like, who who's making the choices here? Are the prisoners choosing where they go or their families or their lawyers? Do the prisons have to worry about remaining competitive against other prisons? These are just my normal questions about privately owned businesses, but do these things apply to a prison? I think a little a little yes and a little no, right? I mean, I don't think that it works in the way that we would like choose to go to a restaurant, so then that restaurant would succeed. I don't think it's quite the same, but um, I do know that certain, at least it used to be, certain prisons have you know some kind of stipulations that say we require that the prison be at at least eighty percent capacity. Um, so then that gets into requiring a certain amount of people be incarcerated at any given time, um, which has some you know judicial ramifications and consequences that we can probably get into later. But like Aaron mentioned, it's, you know, in the contract, like we're paying for the prison, whether we pay through our taxes or we pay through our taxes and then our taxes pay for the private prison. It's all still funded by us because the government is dealing out the contract. So just like you would have to say compete for, um, you know, aircraft parts for military, right? You could say, okay, I could go to Lockheed or I could go to, you know, Northrop Grumman or whatever you would, have both of those companies bidding on, okay, I can get you this part for this much money. And then I get you this part for this much minus 10. They would award the contract to the cheaper bid. So the same would be hold true for private prisons. Um, That's, that's how they would make their money is having to show I am more reliable. I'm cheaper. I'm, I can build this prison in faster time. That was another thing that I saw is that, public prisons typically take two times longer to build. So if you're dealing with a capacity issue for the state and you urgently need a prison, you could say, okay, well, private prison X, go ahead and, you know, you win the contract. And if you could build me my prison in one year. Yeah. If you think about it on like a really basic economic level, say it costs a hundred dollars for the state per day to house one prisoner. And a private prison can come in and they can say, well, I can house this prisoner for $60 a day. And I'm going to propose a contract to the government that says, you pay me $80 per day to house this one prisoner. That gap of how little they can pay to what the government contract is, which in this case, they're saying, you know, give us $80 and we can really house them for $60. That's a $20 profit. And so they have a profit on top of that contract with the government, but it's still less, or they're saying it's less than what it would cost the state to run. So they turn a profit based on the amount of the contract that the government gives them. And the cheaper they can run the prison, the more money they can get. And another way that they make money that I that I looked up is um, opening more prisons. It's kind of like a franchise system of, well, we have one really successful prison in this state. Let's open another prison in another state and we can sell it to them by saying, look at this one prison that we have. That's so great. And we're able to run it in this super efficient way. Let us open there and then we can have this network of prison systems. It's kind of like if you were Starbucks or something and you're looking at opening a bunch of of Starbucks in different states, using your model 
to show, you know, what the benefit is to other places. And that's kind of how this private prison system works. And it's one of the reasons why it's such an impacted market. And there's only a few companies that do this because they're competing with each other, but they're competing with each other for a really small market, which is the government. They have to fight with each other to get these government contracts. It's not like they're just open to everyone. Although for reference, most of these companies are actually public, so they're publicly traded. So you can buy stock in them. So the better they do, if you own that stock, you can actually make money off the private prisons. And and to answer the other question that you had, Cassie, is the typically it's the judge, right, that would sentence the people on where they're going. So it's there's really only one customer, and that customer is the United States government. But the I, you know, I hate to use this word, but the, the commodity, right? The thing that's being sold is the prisoner. And so the prisoner doesn't have any choice in like, oh, do I get to go to a private or a public or it's once you're sentenced, you know, the judge says, okay, here's where you're going to be serving your sentence. It's out of their control. And, and then it's up, it's up to the, the system at that point. What would the judge base that decision on? So it kind of depends on what's available. So the the first the very first question is is this a federal court and a federal crime or is it a state court and a state crime? Because some states don't even have private prisons. So 30 states use private prisons. So if you're in a state one of those other what 21 states that don't have private prisons, you're just going to go to a state prison because that's what you have. But if you're in one of these states that does use a private prisons or if you're in a federal court, which doesn't mean you're in like Washington, D.C., right? There's federal courts in all sorts of states. But if you're in a federal court where they can send you to a private prison, they can decide to do that. And it has a lot to do with prison capacity. So certain states like Montana has the most amount of private prisons. Almost half of the prisoners in Montana go to private prisons, 47%. Some states don't have a lot of public prisons. They just don't support them um, and they haven't built them. They don't have the infrastructure for them. And so, or they have a huge population like California. And so they actually send their prisoners to other states. For California, Colorado is one of the states where California sends its prisoners to go to private prisons because they have capacity there in the way that California doesn't. And so it's kind of dealt with by capacity. And then sometimes the judge will take into account where the person's family is and they'll try to assign them to a prison that's closer to their family if they can do it. But that's also one of the criticisms of kind of the prison system in general, but also specifically private prisons is separating people from their families because it's where the capacity is in the prison system. And the judge is the person that does decide that. My question that I didn't prepare for, but I just, it feels obvious. Like, is this, is the word ethical? Is this, is this cool that we're doing this? That is the word. That is the word. Yeah. That's the big question that people bring up about private prisons is how, you know, first of all, is, is it even like legal? And I, you know, I, from what I've read, like, yeah, the, the, prison, the, the government can contract out this responsibility to like these corporations, but I personally am not in favor of that, even though it is cost cutting, right? Which you would expect the the conservative on the group to be like, no, it saves money. So like, let's absolutely do it. But to me, it's like, if, if you've, if the state has the power to send you to jail then the state should have the obligation to house you. 
straight up. Like you, it shouldn't be doled out to a private company. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that the biggest issue with private prisons is what is the incentive for the company, right? Like their, their incentive yeah. is not rehabilitation or lack of recidivism, which is prisoners going back to prison or, or criminals going back to prison after they've been freed. It is in their interest that people stay in prison and that if they leave, they go back to prison, right? So you can imagine the types mm-hmm. of uh, incentives this gives to them, you know, lobbying for tougher crimes, longer sentences, you know, all of these things that really impact um, how many people are in prison. And then a whole other part of private prisons that I didn't realize and that I learned during this is that detention centers on the border are run by private prisons as well. Um, Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so they're also involved in sort of these, these immigration issues of like, where do we house people when they're awaiting immigration decisions? You know, if there was data that said that private prisons had better conditions and there was more rehabilitation and they were doing all of these things that were super helpful for prisoners in society, there'd be a pretty good argument that, and they were cheaper, there'd be a pretty good argument that, you know, it makes sense for the government to do this. But that's actually not the evidence. In fact, there's evidence that there are worse conditions in private prisons because there's incentives to cost cut, that there's lack of health care, there. It was really interesting. I found a statistic that said in one state, and I'm so sorry, I can't find the state right now, that people who worked for private prisons earned 20000 less as a security guard than they did at public prisons. So you have this like incentive even for employees, probably the better people are going to go work for the government prisons because they're going to make more. Right. And so there's just not a lot of positives that are coming from the private prison system. But I think that the idea appeals to people who don't trust the government to run this kind of stuff and who think that the free market does all of this better. So I I get where the the positive thoughts about it come from because it kind of aligns with this free market, private business philosophy. But in practice, it just doesn't appear to work very well. And it has very perverse incentives that, you know, kind of like you asked Cassie, like, I don't think it's very ethical. And again, it means that we keep more people in prison. You know, something that I was thinking about was maybe we make these Maybe we award government contracts to rehabilitative centers or more mental health centers, you know, something like that, that actually has this incentive to get people back out into society. And there's maybe different kinds of ways you can structure the contract where you get more benefits if you actually help people succeed in society, right? I think there's different ways we could structure this that could be really good that isn't a private prison. I actually am completely on board with that. I think that the marketing material for private prisons is super great, right? I'm going to cut costs and I'm going to, um, you know, operate it cheaper and I'm going to be able to build in, in less time. And the free market side of this study, which was really interesting because it went into all the different ways that being free market, you know, again, air quotes for audio listeners, free market is, oh, I'm going to be able to even procure supplies cheaper because I'm free market, right? Private prison doesn't have to go out and do contracting for all the things that they need to supply the prison including food and equipment and gear and uniforms and all that. So they were saying, oh, well, even, even you know, 
operating it can be cheaper. And um, it's actually in the, the private prison's best interests to have good conditions and um, have low rates of incidences because that makes them more competitive when going in, and getting these contracts, which in theory, I think is true, right? Like if, if you were prison A that had a ton of riots and you had guards, you know, being uh, injured and prisoners being injured all the time, the government's going to look at you and be like, why would I choose you over prison B that has, you know, all these great things. But like Aaron kind of alluded to earlier, it's a little bit of a captive market, right? There's only a, a handful of players in this game and there's only one customer. And so the fact that you also have them doing lobbying as well at the state and federal level to, as Aaron mentioned, have harsher sentencing for crimes, meaning longer terms to, to serve and having more crimes and just the, the, the incentive structure really, as Aaron was talking about, I just think makes it so why would we trust or why would we entrust private prisons to make sure that, that the people being housed there are really being treated well and are not going to wind up back in the system? Uh, the, like I said, to start out, the marketing sounds really great, but I just think that it's so easy to slightly invert the the incentive structure and end up with a lot of room for corruption and mismanagement. And you know, their main goal is profit. At the end of the day, it's it's not it's not rehabilitation, which ends up costing us more money, the taxpayer. And it really does. And I think that's something that gets lost in the in the whole private prison debate about costs. Is like, well, the more the longer people are in jail and the more people who are in jail is actually a burden on society, like wholesale, right? Whether it's in a private prison that is a little bit cheaper or a public prison. And I think it might be quickly helpful. Um, I have some history just of private prisons and the debate around them to kind of give us context of you know why this has been a debate and where it stands right now. For reference, and as we've talked about before, the prison population in the United States has exploded since the 80s. So actually since the 1970s, it's increased by eightfold. So eight times the number of prisoners now than in the 1970s. We have over 2 million people incarcerated right now. That's one in every 100 adults in the United States is in jail. It's far more than any other country. Um, And we talked about this you know, for a long time on our war on drugs episode. And it's largely because of our drug policy. So that's, you know, really the big reason why we have so many people incarcerated. Land of the free, baby. (laughs) Always. I, I found this and I thought it was interesting. The very first private prison was adopted in 1985 in what state? Can anyone guess? Texas. It was, it was Texas. So that was the first place that had a private prison. Um, And since then, it was interesting, private prisons increased until about 2012. The number of prisoners in them was kind of going up and up. And then around 2012, which was during Obama's presidency, it started decreasing. And so the numbers actually have decreased in total since 2012. So they're lower now than they were in 2012, which was the high. But they have increased since 2000. By about 32%, which is kind of, you know, an interesting thing. So there's an overall decrease, but in the last like 20 years, there's actually been an increase. And I thought this was so interesting because I didn't know this. In 2016, which was the very end of Obama's second term, 
there's an announcement from the Justice Department and the White House that there is, there's going to be a phase out of private prisons. We're going to stop using private prisons because this really was a big debate. In fact, it's a, it was a much bigger debate like maybe 10 years ago than it is right now because a lot of people are kind of on board with the idea that we don't really like the sound of private prisons. So in 2016, government announced there's going to be a phase out of private prisons. The stocks on private prisons, which remember are publicly traded for the most part, these companies dropped 50%. It's like huge decrease. Then uh, Trump was elected in 2016 and um, he appointed Jeff Sessions as the um, head of the Department of Justice. And between Jeff Sessions and Trump, they had a policy change and announced that they were not going to cancel the government contracts with for-profit prisons because they wanted the for-profit prisons. So kind of a, a totally complete policy change between 2016 and 2017 with the change of administrations. And when they announced that they were going to continue these for-profit prison contracts, their stock shot up by two times. So it basically went down you know, 50% in one year and went back up to where it was the next year based on just these government government announcements. But of course it makes sense, right? And it shows this, you know, relationship between the government and private prisons. And so since then, there's been a moderate increase in the number of prisoners that are held in private prisons, but it's actually still a pretty small amount of the entire prison population. There's around 116,000 people who are incarcerated in private prisons, which is about 8% of the entire population. So this is an issue, but it's not like it's, you know, 70% of the prison population is in private prisons. But I just thought it was really interesting, the interaction between the politics and the administrations and how that affects private prisons. And I also found this, which was a little bit of a bummer, but private prisons contributed millions of dollars to President Trump's campaign, including to his super PACs. So some of the money that they have, partly from their government contracts, they were able to contribute to political campaigns in a way that helps their business. And this is one of the reasons why there's lots of reasons for, for the government to work with private companies, but the incentives are a problem. And this is one really good example of why. You know, if it is in your interest as a private company for certain people to be involved in politics, then you're going to give money, you're going to, you know, lobby, you're going to do whatever you can do to make sure that those people are in office. And then it makes you money and it did make them money. And so I thought like it, while a lot of people agree on private prisons right now, it's certainly not everyone. And we can see even in just recent history, this flip flop of who's in favor of private prisons and who's not. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious on its face the the incentive structure right you want your people that are gonna give you a favorable policy in power so you know of course of course that makes sense i saw a little bit about that story that you laid out of the end of the obama era i think the answer is not necessarily like oh private prisons bad public prisons good i think it's less prisoners in general i think that's really the the core of the issue because we really shouldn't in my opinion we shouldn't be quote, leader of the free world and have the most, you know, the highest rate of, of incarcerated individuals. I really think that we should look at as a nation and as our states, what we're sending people to jail for, you know, I'm absolutely in favor of sending people to jail for 
violent crimes and you know rapes and all those things like those people are should not be allowed <laughs> just to be wandering around so yeah you know that's the this tough on crime side of me as a republican but for all these drug related crimes and I just think we have so many laws every year. Our legislators are passing so many laws and it's like, let's take a look at that and really see what we're sending people to jail for, especially the drug stuff. And let's get our incarceration rates down. And then I think by default that that will deflate our private prison population and, and maybe eliminate this issue. It's nice to dream. I I don't know that that's going to happen with so much money involved, but that to me is, is almost the bigger issue on top of the the private prison debate. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that is the issue, right? Like how many people we incarcerate, what our incentives for incarcerating are, what we can do about rehabilitation. Because, you know, I think it's easy to say, well, we should incarcerate less people. And that's true. To incarcerate less, less people is like fairly easy on a procedural level. You just change the crimes or change the sentencing laws. Like maybe it's hard to actually make that happen, but that's not actually that difficult procedurally, right? Like you just change the law. To actually rehabilitate people though, I think is a lot more difficult. And that's not something that I think we as a society has been invested in doing. And that's really too bad, right? Like we really could do more to invest in mental health services to actually work with people who are incarcerated to help them have more support once they leave prison. You know, like we have these halfway houses and they're somewhat successful and somewhat not really depends on what, you know, where they are and who's running them and, and how they can actually like be helpful. But there's also so many people in jail with mental health issues. It's not everyone, right? Like, but it's, it's a percentage and we could do more to assist on the mental health level too. And that's something that I don't really see the government prioritizing, but it's, I don't also see our population really prioritizing that either. You know, I see that as kind of a, well, here's our easy thing. We're going to throw people in prison and not like, let's really do the actual work because it is more work and it probably would be more money to rehabilitate people. But on the overall, it's kind of like the overall cost of society. Like how much better would it be if you had someone who didn't go back to prison like three or four times and actually like was able to participate as a functioning and helpful member of society. And also just for that own person's quality of life and ability to live as a person in in our world, you know, like if we had that as more of a priority when we're talking about prisons, instead of how much money does it cost we would have a totally different way of thinking about this. Yeah, two things just quickly from that. You know, first, if we send less people to jail, you know, let's say for nonviolent drug offenses, let's start there, then you have to rehabilitate less people, right? Less people are in the system, so less people have to be rehabilitated because those people are still, you know, they're not missing out on years of their life because they're spending it behind bars for possession of marijuana, right? So that's number one is like, I totally agree. So like the potential money that we would save by not sending so many people to jail, not having to pay to house so many inmates. Okay. We can then turn around and use that money towards rehabilitation instead. And the second thing is just a quick anecdote you mentioned about mental health. I was on a a ride along for Monterey police department. For those of you maybe who don't know Monterey, it gets kind of cold there. It, It gets a little chilly. And we, I was on a ride along with the Monterey police department and we got a call for, from a hotel owner, a motel owner, who had an individual that was refusing to leave his room and we arrived and this individual is, is severely overweight 
Um, I don't know if he had mental health issues, but basically was in, unable to take care of himself. And so I remember standing there on the side of the road on the sidewalk with this, this individual and there's two police officers. There was like three firemen that were called, you know, cause it was like a 911 call. And then I, I think a, a, an ambulance showed up and I was just looking around being like, this is this hour that we spent at this motel probably cost, you know, based off of the wages, of everybody like a hundred thousand dollars, that many firemen and paramedics and EMT and everybody. And they're all, nobody knew what to do with them. They were all discussing being like, well, do you want to arrest him or, oh, and I think he, I think he went to the bathroom, like on the rug of the, in the hotel. So they were like, well, do we arrest him for that and send him to jail? Well, it's just a misdemeanor. He'll be out in the morning. Do we send him to the hospital because he's cold and he's complaining of frostbite? Well, they're just going to like look him over and say he's fine and discharge him. So this, this individual truly had no place to go. And that costs us money because they, they know this guy, like they showed up and they're like, oh, it's you. That happened on your ride along? Yeah. Yeah. It happened on the ride along. And it was just baffling to me that we didn't, there was no plan in place for this person who like the, nobody wants to process him. Nobody wants to take him. So I think that he ended up going to the hospital, but everybody knew that they were just going to keep him there for the night. And then once it was safe and the temperature, you know, came up that he was then going to be released. So. Oh, that happens in San Francisco all oh the my time. God, I'm sure. Like yeah. people are just known. It's like, you just, you bring them in because they're like peeing on the sidewalk or something, which is illegal, right? Like you right. can't do that. But then they, they literally just spend the night in jail and then they go back out. And it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, this, this has now evolved into <laughs> what do we do about the homeless problem? A homeless debate. Right. Yeah. But, but <laughs> what do we do about this? But the finances I think are still important to know, right? Like all of these things cost money. And if we maybe suck it up and pay double for a while, but we, like you mentioned, reduce the the sentencing laws and we, um, you know, eliminate crimes. And I think I just saw the house passed a bill to decriminalize marijuana at the federal level. So it's like, maybe some of this is happening. Did it really? I think so. Like last week. Yeah. So oh my God, what? Um, yeah, I think Axios reported on it. I'm, I'm sure everybody did, but um, it just gets back to some of those things of let's, let's not send as many people to jail. So we have more money to handle the cases of the Monterey pooper or, you know, mental health people or something like that. Right. And also like, even if it's a really small percentage, let's not set up systems that incentivize keeping people in jail, Yeah, which is like, honestly, what private prisons are. It's, and I think this really goes to like the ethics of business decisions, which, you know, we don't talk about that much, but like businesses, I think have a responsibility to behave ethically. Some of those things are true mm -hmm. on like actually a legal level, you know, if you're a board member, you have fiduciary duties. Um, right. But one of your fiduciary duties is duty of loyalty to the company and to the, the shareholders. And if you can do something that's legal, but maybe not super ethical, you can do it. Right. right. But like we could incentivize, not even just incentivize, we could just make it more of a societal expectation that companies behave in an ethical way and don't do things that we think are unethical. And I mean, to me, a private prison is pretty unethical because your incentives are just off. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And and it's true. April 1st, 2022, which maybe seems sketchy, but um, Axios reporting <laughs> House passes bill to decriminalize marijuana. Three Republicans joined all but two Democrats in passing the bill, Rep. Matt Gates, Tom McClintock, and Brian Mast. So there you go. 
Wait, Tom McClintock was one who didn't join it? No, did join. Matt Gates, Tom McClintock, and Brian Mast did join all but two Democrats in passing the bill. Wow. Do you think that more Republicans would have joined that kind of bill if uh, it was proposed by Republicans? Like, do you think that's just political? Yes. The reason only three Republicans joined? Okay. Yeah, I, I fully do. Because I'm like, it's hard for me to tell because I, I don't know, like, any Democrats. I mean, other than those two, I guess, you know, who voted against this, who right. um, are against legalizing marijuana. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious because I feel like the big pushback on that is from the Republicans. Mm -hmm. But maybe I'm off on that. Yeah, I think so. And I don't honestly, I don't know why. I mean, from like the philosophical level, I don't know why. I, I just think that there's still, you know, probably parts of the country, this is California bias showing, there's still probably parts of the country that are older and, you know, largely more conservative than California is. And so me being like a California um, Republican, I get to be like a cool Republican because I'm a bigger for like gay marriage and marijuana and stuff versus probably a big swath of the country is still very traditional and like, ooh, gateway drug. So mm -hmm. I, I just don't get it. Like for me, the arguments, you know, listen to the full War on Drugs episode to like hear the whole take from us on that. But it just doesn't make sense why you would like prohibit this very like benign substance. So yeah, I think if it came from Republican, mm -hmm. it would be get more support, but nobody wants to do that. So looking at our questions, I think we hit everything. We discussed the differences between and, and what are the benefits? What cases would an incarcerated person be placed in either a private or public prison? We did talk about that capacity being the big one. Do private prisons choose what type of prisoners they house? I don't actually know this. No, I think they just get assigned. I did read an interesting article about a private prison. I can't remember what state it was in, but it may have been Indiana that was built but couldn't get the government contract mm. to be able to um, actually get prisoners in there because there was another private prison that was like down the road. So they couldn't get the contract with the state. And so they actually reached out to the federal government to try and get Guantanamo Bay prisoners housed in oh, their private geez. prison because wow. they needed prisoners to fill it up. And I don't think that they were able to, but you know, their argument is, well, you know, we're going to do it cheaper and everything. But then the town it was in argued, well, you could actually hurt our town because other businesses won't, won't want to move here yeah. if we just have this big prison. And that's like our draw for this area. People won't feel safe. You know, all the other reasons that are, you know, whether or not they're like valid, it, it could actually be a market turnoff to have mm. a prison in your area. So that was kind of an interesting one, but wow. also shows the, you know, incentives of we really need prisoners, you know, send us whatever prisoners you have to fill up our prison. Even from Gitmo. That's crazy. Dang. Do you have anything else, Aaron, on this? You know, it's, it's really just like the general issue that I see with this, right? It's, it's pitting safety and rehabilitation against financial incentives. And I think like in some, that's the big issue with private prisons. And it really just shows the limits of like what makes sense for the government to do and what makes sense for private business to do. And just so everyone knows, it doesn't mean that the federal government or the state governments never use private companies in operating prisons. They they have contracts with private companies for food, for health, um, for activities, for all sorts of things for prisons. And I think that that actually makes a lot of sense because those companies can probably do it a lot better than the government, right? But that's a different kind of incentive than actually operating the whole prison yourself. 
Right. The, the incentive structure for the people who are providing the food is not to keep more prisoners so they can like sell more corn dogs. Like it's, it's a very different issue. I mean, it, it fundamentally it's kind of the same, but the incentive is different. And that's, I think what makes it different. I know we're getting close to the end here, but in our initial conversation, Aaron thought that there might be more disagreement here because Zach is small government. And so I think like Aaron, I'm a little surprised, I guess, that he doesn't think this is a good idea. But after talking about this more, I'm definitely seeing why. I think the issue for me is that there's there's a, f- like on the ranking of things that I prioritize, like there's a fundamentally bigger issue at play than just the cost associated with it. Because if you were just going to ask me on cost from the data that I saw, yeah, private prisons are cheaper. So they therefore good. But the higher issue is the amount of people that we're incarcerating and the incentive structure that because private prisons are part of that whole system, the incentive that they have to operate is contributing to a bigger problem, which is mass incarceration, which I am not in favor of. So to me, like the individual freedom of people to like live their life and not be in jail for you know, nonviolent crimes and uh, you know just dumb stuff, um, to me, outweighs the benefits of a cheaper run prison. Like let's, let's eliminate the need for the prison in general, because it's more of a human rights, like liberty thing rather than just the cost to run it. Yeah. And maybe there's just certain things and maybe you think they're really limited, you know, depending on your politics that the government actually like should be doing. That's the government's prerogative. And to me, I think this is one of those things because like you just can't trust a private business that has financial incentives to do this in a way that is totally ethical and focused on these longer term incentives of not having prisoners, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and you can argue whether you think the government's doing that well. I think that's a totally fair argument, but there's maybe certain things that are just really make more sense to be within the government's control. And this might be one of them. You know, it's really different than the government awarding a contract to a business to build a road. Like that totally makes sense for the government to do with a private business, right? But this is just not one of those things. And what a shame because right. all the things we talked about earlier, like that that certain prisons, I, I'm disappointed that they're not doing more what I imagined in my head that they could do, which is choose an area to stand out. Like our prisoners um, have this percent of a rehabilitation rate or our prisoners, um, like 50% of our prisoners go on to become lawyers because of our award-winning library. Like, I'm so sad that that's not what this conversation ended up being about. Like, I'm disappointed that the government decided, okay, we have a need. We don't want to fill it or it's not necessarily for us to fill it by building and maintaining all these prisons. So we're going to outsource. That's how my business brain understands this. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm so disappointed. Like, I don't, I feel like the competition aspect of it is weird, maybe like that they're not really competing with the, it, it, it all feels very backwards and wrong. And like the people are not getting incentivized for the right things at all. It's very disappointing. So what can we do? Lobby your legislatures to reduce sentencing for crimes. We can change our crimes that require prison. You know, that's one of the things that we can do. There's within the context of private prisons, we can have more transparency and oversight than we do now if you're going to keep them. 
That was so interesting, you guys. Truly. Was it? I am glad because I feel like we we had a lot of the same sorts of things to say. I am I'm not like super surprised because it lines up with like your ethics. It really does, but mm. it's just interesting because once I did start looking into it, I was like, oh, this is a free market thing. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, this is a free market thing. And that's what like all of the arguments in favor of it are. Yeah. Which would make sense if that was allowing people to like be more free. Like this is literally the issue of prison. Like it's a true correlation to freedom and it's making people less free. Or heck, even if it for some reason like cut costs by 50%, if they were doing the same things that public prisons were doing and it was a 50% cost, like, okay, sure, let's do it. But it's not. It's like 5 to 7%. Like it's not a huge difference, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's not like public prisons are so great. Like public prisons have human rights violations and all sorts of problems too. Right. But it's the private prisons are doing like nothing and they're like incentivized to keep people in jail. It's just, it's kind of like all bad. There's no like good parts of it. It's not like there's any bad part of the public prison system that the private prisons are doing so much better. Right. Right. And that's where like, if it's purely a financial thing, and the government awards the contract, then it's the government's money either way. What am I missing here? (laughs) Like, why not keep it? I know, Zach, I'm saying more government involvement. I'm sorry. But it's not not really more government involvement. Like, the government's doing it anyway. Like, they're already sending people to jail. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you're – I mean, to me, I don't see that as more government. Like, yeah, maybe you have more prisons, but that's not – when I say, like, less government, like, that's not what I mean. I mean, like less. You mean less government involvement most of the time, which is why, like, I would agree with you. Like, if if it was going to be done better by private organizations, then sure, maybe we don't need another thing that gets caught up in government red tape and bureaucracy. But it feels like it is. It's just operating under a different name. Mm-hmm. Like it's masquerading as different, but it's not different. Yeah, not different yeah. enough. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's the potential for corruption is like totally there. I think it just doesn't make sense. It's not a big enough benefit to outweigh the actual cost of it. And that's why I would rather just circumvent the whole problem and just throw less people in jail. This is like a perfect circle for what we started talking about today, which was Splash Mountain. This was my entire thing with Splash Mountain. I was like, my general rule is like, do no harm. If even a small group of people are bothered by a racist ride, even if I don't think it's racist, like the ride shouldn't exist. Full stop. Like change the ride. I'm not going to sit here and feel bad for Disney or for like we mentioned, like the Washington Redskins or somebody who's like, oh, like, I have all this history with this ride, or I don't want to change. No, no, F you. Like, people are feeling actual, like, pain and appropriation, and nothing is more important than not causing people harm and pain. So that's just the answer for me. There's no going around it. Like, if it's doing harm, then, like, why have it? Because it saves 5%. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for all your research and your input I really appreciate it because I definitely didn't know that there were more than one kind of prison, that there was any kind of debate around this. But I find myself, again, 
fascinated and enlightened and a little disappointed, but not in you guys. So don't worry about that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the questions. Yeah. Yeah, that was really great. I learned more than I thought I was going to. I kind of thought I knew about this and there was just, there were a lot of things to kind of learn and pick up on. Yeah. Well, unless this comes back into legislation for midterms or something, we can probably let this one rest. We'll see. So. We'll come back to it if we need to. If you made it this far, thanks so much for joining us here on The Reframers. And we're looking forward to meeting up with you again really soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 